And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So in these chapters of, uh, last chapters of Isaiah, particularly starting in chapter 60 through 66, that we see that Isaiah has been talking a lot about, uh, all throughout the book, the judgment that would come to the house of Israel, particularly in the first half of Isaiah, to the ten northern tribes of Israel, which would happen. The Assyrians would come and take them away captive in 722 B.C. But then he, uh, in the second part, starting in chapter 40 to the end of the book, is speaking about the captivity that would come to the house of Judah, the southern tribe, and that would be begin in 605 BC by the Babylonians. And as Isaiah is prophesying, keep in mind that Isaiah, he gives these, these prophecies that were near fulfillments that would be fulfilled with them going off into captivity with Babylon. They would come back. They would go through difficult times. We're going to continue to see those prophecies given to us as Isaiah is going to speak about how Jerusalem is going to be devastated. We know that Jeremiah comes on the scene after Isaiah, and he's warning the leaders of Judah, don't rebel against Nebuchadnezzar, that you need to turn to the Lord because there's going to be great devastation, destruction, and death if you do rebel against Nebuchadnezzar, if you don't repent, and the people wouldn't listen. So here is Isaiah that, that he is warning them, but also, as we know, that Isaiah would look down through history, and he would give prophecy concerning that is future fulfillment that is yet to be fulfilled that concerns Israel, the return of the Lord. Isaiah speaks more about the coming Messiah than any other you know, prophet that we have uh, in the Old Testament. So Isaiah here, he has spoke about Jesus' first coming. He is also speaking about his second coming. And that's what we're going to see emphasized here uh, in these last four chapters. Keep in mind that there's a lot going on, the events concerning the return of the Lord. So it's going to become more clear as we go through the book of Revelation. So there may be a lot that I'm going to throw out at you tonight. But as we continue going through the scriptures, going through the prophets going through the book of Revelation, it'll start to become clear to you. And particularly for you who maybe don't know a lot about end time prophecy, or perhaps you haven't studied it, it can be very overwhelming. And so we're going to go through this because what we see is that he's going to talk about the second coming of Jesus Christ. And matter of fact, let's begin to look at that in chapter 63 is who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra, the one who is glorious in his apparel traveling in the greatness of his strength I who speak in righteousness mighty to save and so keep in mind this that Isaiah in chapter 2 when he is speaking about the millennium reign when he's speaking about the day of the Lord he uses that term when he's speaking about the new heavens and the new earth the re second coming of Jesus Christ in Isaiah chapter 2 we know that uh, it was told concerning the visions of Isaiah that it shall come to pass in the latter days and he begins to talk about the millennium reign. He begins to talk about the second coming of Jesus Christ. But the thing is that Isaiah was told these things must come to pass. Not that they might come to pass, but they must come to pass. When we open up the book of Revelation and John there on the island of Patmos and the angel comes to him and says, John, write these things down that must come to pass. In other words, not might come to pass, but these things are going to come to pass. And of 
course, John is going to give us the outline of the book of Revelation in chapter 1, verse 19, that he writes about the things that are, the, the, um, the, the things he has seen, the things that are, and the things that will be. And chapters 4 through the end of the book is all yet future. But John is told these things must come to pass. And the reason that I mention that is because there are those who will come along and say, well, Isaiah is just speaking allegories or their spiritual fulfillments. Listen, as we've gone through Isaiah, and he has spoken about Jesus' first coming, the suffering Messiah, about his birth, about, you know, how he would be marred more than any other man, that he uh, didn't hide his cheeks from those who pulled out the beard, that he was like a lamb that was led to the slaughter. He took upon himself the iniquities of us all. Of course, speaking of the suffering Messiah, that as we see that Isaiah spoke about Jesus' first coming, it was fulfilled to the letter, wasn't it? So we have reason to believe that his second coming, we don't spiritualize it, or it's just an allegory, that these events that are being spoken of here, just as he was told in verse 2 uh, of chapter 2, that these things must come to pass and they are going to happen. So here as we reach verse 1 of chapter 63, it's an interesting verse, again, speaking of the second coming of Jesus Christ, that, that he's going to come. But, but here's the thing. Keep in mind, first of all, that when we talk about the return of the Lord, we're talking about two distinct events. We're talking about the rapture of the church, where he comes for his saints, and then in the second coming of Jesus Christ when he comes with his saints. And what I mean by that is Paul would write about the day's going to come when there's going to be a generation of Christians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, that they are going to meet the Lord in the air, that the Lord will descend, um, and he will, with a shout, with the voice of an angel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain Maine, will be caught up as the Hebrew word, or excuse me, the, the Greek word harpazo, where we get the Latin word rapturus, it means a sudden taking, we'll meet the Lord in the air, and we will always be with him, comfort one another with these words. So there's going to be a generation of Christians, the church has promised that we are going to be raptured, and then he goes on and he says, but concerning the day of the Lord, that you have no need that I should write to you, uh, for you know the times and the seasons. And, and he goes on, he says that you know that the day of the Lord is going to be like a thief in the night, that when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction will come upon them. It's interesting that he changes the pronoun. And the reason that he does is because the day of the Lord, keep that in mind, is very important as we study end time prophecy, is a period of time. It begins in Revelation chapter 6, verse 1, in the beginning of the tribulation period, as the seals are opened up. And on the scene comes the Antichrist. It correlates with Daniel chapter 9 in verse 27 that the Antichrist will come on the scene and he will make a covenant with Israel for seven years and it seemingly allows them to rebuild their temple. Now, Israel, in Israel, you can go to a place and, and uh, we'll, we'll look at it and, and perhaps go there in our next tour, but we've been there several times. It's called the Temple Institute and you can go there and you can see 
see where they're getting all the furnishings ready and the priestly garments. All they really need is a building. They're training priests for the sacrifices. And so the Antichrist, who seemingly is going to be a peacemaker, a world leader, is going to come on the scene, make a covenant with Israel for one week, and then uh, we see that God's going to emphasize once again Israel in their history because in the vision that Daniel received in chapter 9, which is really important to understand for end-time prophecy in, in the timetable, that Daniel know and understand this, that seven weeks are determined for your people and your holy city. And Daniel's people are the Jews, and the holy city is Jerusalem. And 69 of those seven-year periods, that's what a week means, 69 weeks, are going to start when the command comes out to rebuild and restore Jerusalem until coming of Messiah the Prince. And we know that that took place that 483 years from the time that Nehemiah goes and rebuilds the wall, the wall around Jerusalem and rebuilds the streets until coming of Jesus, that that fulfills 69 weeks, but there's 70 weeks. There's still a one week period, seven year period that God is going to be focused once again on Israel. And keep in mind this as well. As you go through all throughout the Old Testament, there are hundreds of verses, whole chapters that are dedicated to God's going to restore Israel. And so Isaiah is looking down as he gives near fulfillment that they would come back from their captivity from Babylon, but then looking further into history, because God knows the end from the beginning, right? That they are going to come back into the land, even as Jesus would speak about. And then he's going to restore Israel at the end of the tribulation period. We will get into it in the book of Romans, chapter 11, that their eyes will be opened and and we know that, as Zechariah says, that they will say to their Messiah, where did you get those wounds as they are weeping? And he says that I got them in the house of my friends. Their eyes are going to be opened up and they're going to recognize that Jesus is their Messiah, their Mashiach. And Paul writes in Romans chapter 11, in that day, all of Israel will be saved. And when Jesus comes back, he's going to, first of all, he's going to judge the nations. He's going to restore Israel, and then he's going to establish his kingdom for a thousand years. So all these things are taking place in chapter 63. What we read here is that the Lord's going to come back, and it's interesting. Who is this that comes from Edom, dyed garments from Basra, the one who is glorious in his apparel? That is speaking of Jesus. Now, Zechariah chapter 14 tells us that when Jesus Christ comes back in the second coming of Jesus Christ, at the end of the tribulation period, that he will touch down on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives will heave in half. Um, but before he does that, what he's going to do is he's going to go to Basra here. And there's indication, even as you read from Micah chapter 2, verses 12 and, and 13, what he's going to do is he's going to go and gather the Jews there that are in the rock city of Petra. You say, why are they in the rock city of Petra? Because what we have seen already in Isaiah, that what's going to take place is, and we will read this in the book of Revelation, that halfway in the tribulation period, according to Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, according to Revelation chapter 12, and according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, as Paul is writing to that church, is that the 
Antichrist will go into the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. He will establish himself as God to be worshipped as God in the, in the temple of God. So the Antichrist, who is directly influenced by Satan himself, and what's something that Satan has always wanted? He's wanted to be worshipped. He's going to declare himself as God. He will destroy the one world you know, religious system that he, that he has supported for his own purposes. He will command the world to worship him, and those who do not align themselves with the Antichrist will not be able to buy and sell, as we will see in Revelation chapter 13. But what we see is the Jews are going to reject him. They're going to say no to him, and then he is going to heavily persecute the Jews and also the tribulation saints. Now, as I've mentioned the rapture of the church, that we'll talk about this more specifically, but I really believe that the scripture teaches us that the church is going to be raptured before the day of the Lord, that we will be taken out of and away from the hour of tribulation that shall come upon the whole earth to test those who dwell on the earth. And that's what uh, the promise was given to the church of Philadelphia. It's a promise that's given to us that the Lord says that I'm going to take you out of and away from the hour of tribulation, not take you through the hour of tribulation. So we're going to be raptured. And then after that is that final seven year period. And then Jesus Christ comes back. We will come back with him riding on white horses, according to Revelation chapter 19. Jude says in his little epistle that behold, he comes with ten thousands of his saints. And we know that in the middle of the tribulation period, going back to that, that the Antichrist, when he does establish himself as the world leader to be worshipped as God, that he will heavily persecute the tribulation saints, he, the, those who get saved in the tribulation period, because there's going to be a revival according to Revelation chapter 7. And then also the Jews, and there's going to be a remnant of the Jews that are going to flee to Jordan, where the rock city of Petra is. And we've talked about that. And we know that Isaiah chapter 16 speaks of it. Send the lamb to the ruler of the land from Shelah, and that word means rock, to the wilderness. And then he goes on, Isaiah, to say in that chapter, Let my outcasts dwell with you, O Moab. Be a shelter to them from the face of the spoiler or the destroyer. So Isaiah speaks about how they're going to flee to the wilderness, Revelation chapter 12, and we're, we're, you know, the Bible suggests uh, that they will be at the rock city of Petra. Petra, we got a picture of it up in the hallway upstairs, that the Indiana Jones movie where he, you know, the third one, he goes into that narrow canyon. That's Petra. So they will be tucked away, and then the Lord's going to go there first, and then he's going to gather the Jews there, and then he will come to the Mount of Olives. We know that Jesus in Matthew chapter 24 says that when Jesus comes back, he said, every eye shall see uh, the coming of the Lord. Jesus said, I will come back in great power and glory. It'll be like lightning flashing from the east to the west. And the angels will then uh, go and gather the elect from the four corners of the earth. So the Jews are going to be gathered at that time. And he's going to go to Basra, which is the capital of Edom, where Petra is, and we know that again Micah speaks of that. Let me read to you from Micah chapter 2 and verses 12. Uh, we read
indeed, that I shall surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like the sheep of Basra, or the fold, like a flock in the midst of their pasture. So once again, Micah speaking at that time, he's going to bring them out of Petra and bring them back to Jerusalem, where he will rule and reign and establish his kingdom. So uh, just a lot of stuff that's taking place that the scripture gives us indication of. Let's continue in verse 2. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone and from the peoples no one was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments and I have stained all my robes. For the day of vengeance is in my heart and the year of my redeem has come. I looked but there was no one to help and I wondered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore my own arm brought salvation for me and my own fury it sustained me. I have trodden down the peoples of my anger, made them drunk in my fury and brought down their strength to the earth. So garments here of uh, speaks of the one who's going to come in glorious apparel that stained with the one who treads the wine press. Verse 3, uh, their blood sprinkled, sprinkled upon my garments. Is speaking of the vengeance of the return of Jesus. And you can go to Revelation chapter 14 and read about it there. And then also in chapter 19, the second coming of Jesus Christ. Let me just read a few verses. But when he comes back, He's clothed with the robe dipped in blood, and his name shall be called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. That's a direct quote from Psalm 2. And he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, that king of kings and the lord of lords and so when he comes back it's going to be a day of wrath and as we continue reading here in verse 7 i will mention the loving kindness of the lord and the praises of the lord according to all that the lord has bestowed on us and the great goodness towards the house of israel which he has bestowed on them according to his mercies according to the multitude of his loving kindness for he said surely they are my people children who will not lie so he became their Savior. So here, as we know that Jesus will come back to rule and judge, Jesus alone, listen, he died for our sins, and he alone is going to judge, you know, uh, when he comes back, the nations. And we do not put our trust in this world, because this world that we now know is going to come to an ugly end. I think we know that. And so that's why it's good news that you and I, that we're citizens of heaven, aren't we? That, that we are ones that, as Peter writes, belong to a, a holy nation. And Daniel chapter 2, in that vision that Daniel would interpret for Nebuchadnezzar, the dream that he had, he said, Nebuchadnezzar, that the, the, the image that you saw made of different metals represents the Gentile nations from the time of Babylon till the end of time, the second coming of Jesus Christ. And, and all of a sudden this rock comes and hits this image in its feet and the image crumbles and it turns to dust and then the rock grew. And it speaks of that man's kingdom is going to come to an end, but God's kingdom is going to be the one that's going to be established forever. That's what the rock, the rock Jesus Christ, it 
represents. And, and so we know that we can rejoice because we belong to a kingdom that will last forever. And as we read these verses, though, in the blackness of God's wrath, we see the brightness of God's love to extend mercy and loving kindness to those who belong to him. And as we go through these, these verses that speak of great tribulation period, it speaks of the wrath of the Lord when he comes back, you got to keep in mind that, that it's not just a sense of, of just God punishing sinners and pouring out his wrath on a Christ-rejected world. Remember that Romans chapter 1, verse 18, that, that the wrath of God will be revealed upon all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. He is going to judge sin. But also know this. That as we talk about these things, he's vindicating his redeemed. So sometimes when we read this, it's heavy, isn't it? And again, that these things aren't written for us so that we can be scared. These things are written to us so that we can be comforted. Paul says, comfort one another with these things. And even when he talks about the day of the Lord, that is, begins with the tribulation period, he says, you and I, that we're not appointed to wrath, but to attain salvation. Comfort one another with these words. But it is very sobering to know that he's going to come and he's going to bring judgment upon a Christ-rejected world during that time, and that he is going to judge the nations, but he's vindicating his redeemed. And I can't wait till the Lord comes back and establishes his kingdom, and then righteousness and peace and justice is going to fill the earth because I look all around me and it, it just breaks my heart to see how this world is getting more evil, more darker, more weird. And Paul said that the last days would be perilous times. Evil men and imposters are going to grow worse and worse. And so we want to be ones that we are praying for those around us that may their eyes be open to see the Lord because he is coming back, folks. And I think there's an urgency more than ever that we need to give the gospel and the love of Jesus Christ to others because he is coming back and we see the signs all around us. But let's continue and read in verse 9. In their affliction he was afflicted and the angel of his presence saved them, speaking of Jesus. And in his love and in his uh, pity he redeemed them. And he bore them and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit so he turned himself against them as an enemy and he fought against them. So as we, we begin to look at this, he showed his love to them. And here Isaiah goes back to where they would be in the wilderness. They, he delivered them from Egypt. And the Lord did not delight in judgment that came to them because of their, their disobedience. And what's interesting in verse 9, in their affliction, he was afflicted. So commentators, Bible teachers, uh, see it two ways. Either what is being spoken of is that the Lord, as he would come, and, and of course, in their disobedience, he even had to deal with them as they came out of Egypt. And of course, they would end up in the wilderness for 40 years. But the Lord didn't delight in judgment. And the scripture says he doesn't delight in judgment. You got to remember that as the Lord talks about judgment coming on a Christ-rejected world, as Isaiah was weeping because he's telling the nation, you're going to go into captivity, that the Lord desires that none should perish, but that we all should come into repentance, that his desire that we all be saved. But he doesn't force us 
to believe in him. He doesn't force his love on us. And we know that he is going to judge sin. So he didn't delight in judgment to his own people, even at this time as they would go into captivity. But he is a God that is going to deal with sin. And he says here that, you know, as in verse 9, in all their affliction, he was afflicted. He, he was sorry. He was um, very grieved that he would have to do that. He wanted his people to follow after him. Um, but also that it reminds me of this. Remember that when Paul was on the road to Damascus, that when he met the Lord and was knocked down, that the Lord said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And here's the thing, as you're persecuted in whatever way that comes to you, because those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, that, that as you are being persecuted, he's being persecuted. Saul, Saul, who was heavily persecuting the church, going to Damascus to, to arrest Christians, why do you persecute me, the Lord says. So he's afflicted as we are afflicted as well. In verse 10, but they rebelled as we read and grieved his Holy Spirit. So he turned himself against them as an enemy. He fought against them. And then he remembered the days of old Moses and his people saying, where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who put, on, uh, put his Holy Spirit within them, who led them by the right hand of Moses with his glorious arm, dividing the water before them to make for himself an everlasting name? who led them through the deep as uh, a horse in the wilderness that they might not stumble. And in verse 14, and as a beast goes down to the valley and the spirit of the Lord causes him to rest, so you lead your people to make yourself a glorious name. So the angel of presence, again, speaking of Jesus, he loved them, they rebelled. God saved them, did bring them through the deep, that is the Red Sea uh, that we see, and through the wilderness, he was faithful to make a glorious name. Remember that it was Moses that said to Pharaoh that Moses um, saying, Pharaoh, let my people go. And, and you're going to know that he truly is the Lord, not your false Egyptian gods, but he is the Lord. And of course, the plagues came down upon Egypt and Pharaoh found out that truly that he is the Lord. In verse 15, look down from heaven and see from your habitation, holy and glorious. Where are your zeal and your strength, the yearning of your heart and your mercies towards me? Are they restrained? Doubtless you are our father through Abraham was ignorant of us and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer from everlasting, is your name. Verse 17, O Lord, why have you made us stray from your ways and harden your heart from your fear? Return for your servants' sake, the tribes of your inheritance. Your holy people have possessed it, but a little while our adversaries have trodden down your sanctuary. We have become like those of old who whom you've never ruled, those who were never called by your name. So simply, they would wonder in their history, the children of Israel, when they're in the wilderness, even at this time as they're rebelling against the Lord, refusing to turn back to him, they're going to go off into captivity. And they're asking, where's your zeal? Where's your strength, Lord? And then in verse 17, oh, Lord, why have you made us stray from your ways? What is going on here? What they're doing is they're blaming God. 
They're blaming God for the consequences that they experienced because of their sin and disobedience. And Lord, it's your fault that we've gone into captivity. It's your fault that we're in the wilderness wandering. And you see, today, even Christians have that tendency that they will you know, continue in a sin. They'll, they'll be involved in carnality. They'll experience the consequences of what they are doing. Because remember that Galatians tells us, don't be deceived. God will not be mocked. Whatever a man sows, so shall he reap. And if you sow into the spirit, you're going to reap into everlasting life. If you sow into the flesh, you're going to reap corruption. And the things that we do, there's consequences. There's going to be a crop that's going to come up, a harvest. And we need to remember that that's a spiritual law for every single one of us. And there's consequences for sin and carnality. Yes, we have forgiveness when we come back to him. But people experience the consequences of sin. And the Lord is saying, the reason I don't want you to sin is because I don't want you to get hurt. And it's bad news. And I want you to walk in my ways, in righteousness, what is right, because my ways are good. And there's safety, and there's security, and there's blessing, and there's benefit in walking in the ways of the Lord. Besides, as we're going to see in the book of Romans, should we continue in sin that grace abounds? He says, certainly not. We're dead to all that stuff. Listen, the Lord did not save you or me and brought us out of the darkness into his marvelous light so we can go back into the darkness and be a slave to sin and continue in sin. And if we do, there's going to be consequences and repercussions. And I've had people in my office that are blatantly disobedient to the Lord and they're experiencing the difficulties and the heartaches and, and the repercussions of their sins and they blame God for it. Well, God did this and it's God's fault and they don't understand that they've rebelled against the Lord. And that's what they're saying here. Why have you made astray from your ways? It's your fault, Lord. And that's what they would do. They would say, Lord, why did you bring us out here in the wilderness? And nothing's going to happen to us. And in Ezekiel, we're going to see that they grinded their teeth and they blamed it on their fathers. And it's Ezekiel that was told to tell the people that that proverb will not be heard in the land anymore. You're going to be responsible for your sin is what he told his people. Quit blaming it on your fathers and quit blaming it on the Lord. He has warned you and he wants to do what's right and good in our lives. And he extends mercy and grace oftentimes. But listen, if you're involved in sin, stop. Because there's going to be terrible consequences that will come and repercussions and heartache that comes because God will not be mocked. Don't be deceived. Whatever a man sows, so shall he reap. And that's the spiritual law for all of us. So in chapter 64, or that you would rend the heavens and that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence. As we go into chapter 64, uh, as the fire burns brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. And we know that when the children of Israel came out of Egypt, they came to Mount Sinai and the mountain shook. And, and it trembled and there was lightnings and thunders and smoke on the mountain. And the people were so overwhelmed that they said, Moses, we can't handle this. You go up on the mountain and we'll do what you tell us to do. 
It was just the awesome presence of God that was seen. And, and in the return of Jesus Christ, when he comes back to the Mount of Olives, the nations are going to tremble at the presence of Jesus. And that's what's being spoken of. Listen, if you ever hear anyone, because cults and, you know, uh, those who are false, sometimes they'll, they'll say, well, the Lord came back. He came back spiritually or in secret. That's a bunch of baloney. Because the Bible is very clear all throughout the scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament, Jesus himself, that when I come back, Jesus says, every eye will see me, and he comes back in great power and glory. That's very easy for us to understand, right? So when somebody says, well, you know, we believe the Lord already came back spiritually or secretly, you know, that doesn't line up with what the scripture says. When he comes back, he will come back and, and the nations are going to tremble is what we're learning here in chapter 64, verse 3. When you did awesome things for which we did not look, you came down, the mountain shook at your presence. For since the beginning of the world, man have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God beside you who acts for the one who waits for him. And so we read this, that there's no God like our God. No one compares to him and, and blesses the one who waits for him. And we talked a little bit about this on Sunday, didn't we, if you were here for our study, that one of the blessings and benefits of being saved, we can rejoice in our tribulations because tribulations, God is doing the work, produces endurance. We wait on him. And we talked about waiting on the Lord, that in our spiritual lives, we need to learn to do that. It's not an easy thing to do. I don't always like waiting on the Lord, but we are told that there's blessing and benefit as we wait on the Lord. And here we see that, as he says, that those who wait for him, that there's going to be uh, the Lord that's going to, in verse 4, act for the one who waits for him. I like that, that the Lord is going to still be working as I'm waiting for him. We know that Isaiah chapter 30 tells us that he'll be gracious to those who wait on him. There's going to be bless, uh, blessing that will come to those who wait on him. So as we wait on him, know this, God is working. And sometimes when we're in that, oh, Lord, waiting period, as we're just going through the trials or the difficulties, we wonder, Lord, are you with me? Are you still working? Know this, that his word declares to you that he is, that he acts for those and on behalf of those who are waiting for him. And maybe you're here at this Christmas season at the end of 2018 and you're still waiting on the Lord for something. And I want you to know this, that he is working in your life and he's going to be faithful to complete that work that he's begun in you. And he's going to, as that, that endurance, we can, we can glory in tribulation because it produces endurance, patience, which produces what character, godly character. And the Lord is shaping you and he is molding you and being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ, which he desires to do in all of us, that there's going to be a refining process that takes place. And then as we develop godly character, growing and maturing, as James says, that let patience have its work in you to bring you to completion, that is maturity, that Paul goes on to say there in chapter 5 of Romans that that character produces hope and hope does not disappoint. I want to say this. There's always hope in Jesus Christ. Hang on to him. 
Hope in his word. Hope that he'll never leave you or forsake you. That word hope is certainty. We know that his, his word is true to us and he's working for us. So as we wait on him, he acts for those who wait for him. In verse 5, you meet him who rejoices and does righteousness, who remembers you and your ways. You are indeed angry, for we have sinned, and these ways we continue. We need to be saved. In verse 6, for we are like an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. So here in verse 6, it really goes along to what we've been studying in the book of Romans, that we can cannot earn our way to heaven. We cannot work for it. We cannot bring our own righteousness before God because our righteousness are as filthy rags before God. And to be reminded of what he wrote in chapter 61, that as you remember that, uh, that Isaiah wrote in verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. And we see that illustration so clearly in Zechariah chapter 3, as Joshua the high priest is standing before the Lord, Satan's accusing him, and we know that the Lord says to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, and take those filthy rags off of Joshua, the high priest, and put on new robes on him, clean robes. And that's what's being spoken of here in the book of Isaiah. That's what's being spoken of in the book of Romans. We cannot stand before God in our own righteousness, because we're all guilty. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And our righteousness are as filthy rags before the Lord. And Joshua, the high priest, standing before the people, seems so righteous with his priestly robes and the ephod and the mitres and, and, and all of this. The people would look at Joshua and say, look how holy he is. Look how righteous he is. But standing before the Lord, he has filthy rags on. Zechariah chapter 3. The Lord says, take those robes off and put on clean robes. And that's what's being spoken of here. As for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. We need to be clothed with what? The righteousness of Jesus Christ who has imputed righteousness to us because of our faith in him. So powerful lessons that we're learning from the scriptures concerning our justification and salvation before the Lord. And for as the earth brings forth buds and the garden causes the things that are sown it to spring forth, so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. And so we see here that... I'm reading from the wrong chapter. I was reading from 61. Let's go. <laughs> this time of the year, I got Romans in my head. I got Isaiah in my head. Sephaniah in my head. Christmas Eve services. <laughs> Four services a week. Calvary Live. All that. Verse 7, there is no one who calls on your name who stirs himself up to take hold of you and you have hidden your face from us and have consumed us because of our uh, iniquities. And But now, O Lord, you are our Father. 
and you, uh, we are the clay and you are the potter, and we are the work of your hand. And do not be furious, O Lord, nor remember iniquity forever. Indeed, please look where all your people, your holy cities are a wilderness, Zion is a wilderness, Jerusalem a desolation, our holy and beautiful temple, where our fathers praised you is burned up with fire, and all our pleasant things are laid waste. Will you restrain yourself because of these things, O Lord? Will you hold your peace and afflict us very severely? So it, here the Lord is saying that, um, that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. Babylon's would come in. They'll destroy it with fire, destroy Solomon's temple, level the city. But I want to draw attention to, to verse 8, that you are our father, you are the clay, and, and we are the clay, and you are the potter, and we're all the work of your hands. Listen, remember that, that we're the clay, He's the potter, and as we're on that potter's wheel spinning, that he's molding us, he desires to make us a vessel that is beautiful and useful for him. And again, that's not always easy because here is the master potter that pushes and he presses, and we can feel it, and there's times where we want to jump off the potter's wheel, right? But you just allow the Lord to mold you and shape you in the way that he does. Because we are the work of your hands, Lord. And he wants to do a beautiful, beautiful work in your life. To make you a vessel that is beautiful for him and useful for him. But as we allow him to do that, we can feel the pressures and the feel like we're being pushed. And it's uncomfortable at times. The refining that we just talked about. But know that he's doing a work in your life. And in chapter 65, just a few verses that we want to go through and then we'll end tonight. That I was sought by those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that had not called by my name. Now, there are some commentators that say that this is speaking of Judah who right now doesn't want the Lord in rebellion and then later on that they're going to come back from the captivity and they're going to call upon him. But what is interesting here is we're going to see in Romans chapter 10 verse 20 that Paul quotes from this and he's talking about the Gentile nations. And I think that makes sense to a nation that was not called by my name. And so to the Gentiles um, that uh, as he is um, answering a prayer from chapter 63 and 64 that we read. And we know that the Lord is going to um, bring salvation to the Gentiles. has already been declared. Um, and he has come to us. And speaking of the church age, and of course in the book of Acts, that the gospel would go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And then in verse 2, he goes back to speaking about uh, his people. I have stretched out my hands all day long to rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good according to their own thoughts, a people who provoke me to anger continually to my face, who sacrifice in gardens and burn incense on altars of bricks, who sit among the graves and spend the night in the tombs, who eat swine's flesh. Remember that pork was 
considered unclean, and the broth of the abominable things in their vessels, who say, Keep it to yourself. Do not come near me, for I am holier than you. These are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all day. But behold, it will be written before me. I will not keep silent, but will repay, even repay in their bosom your iniquities and the iniquities of your fathers together, says the Lord, who have burned incense on the mountains and blast me on the hills. Therefore, I will measure their former work into their bosom. And so here the Lord is just speaking about that how they've gotten away from him. Um, they flaunted their sin. They were proud of their sins. And, and we see that even today, those who are re in rebellion against God, that people today, you know, they're proud of their sin. They flaunt their sins. And you and I, what we are to do is we are to yield ourselves to the Lord. So here the Lord is saying these things brokenheartedly to his people. I've called you to turn to me and to return to me and repent that I may bless you and restore you. And as we end tonight, maybe there's something that the Lord has been speaking to you about. Because remember this, as Christians, Jesus took the judgment that you and I deserve on Calvary's cross. He took the punishment for you and for me. But he will chasten his people. And as he spoke about how the Holy Spirit was in them, but they, they didn't, you know, they grieved the Holy Spirit is what it says. And if you are one that you're grieving the Holy Spirit as the Lord is speaking to you, or you're quenching the Spirit as the Lord is desiring to use you in some way, you see, those are two different things. You can quench the Spirit. Maybe the Lord has been wanting you to speak to that person who isn't saved. And here they're saying, we're holier than thou. And some have suggested it was the Jews that turned inwardly and thought that the Gentiles were good for nothing. They, they couldn't be saved. Don't quench the Holy Spirit in the work that he wants to do in your life, but then grieve in the Holy Spirit when we rebel against the Lord. And maybe he's speaking to you to repent of something that's going on in your life. Maybe a sin, carnality, an attitude, whatever it may be. And know this. He wants you to turn to him so that your fellowship is just restored, that closeness with the Lord, that you may do well and be benefited and blessed. And we want to be ones that were sensitive to the leading of the Lord. And you see, we should be as Christians that sin grieves you know, us because we know it grieves God. To come to the place of, Lord, I don't want to be involved in anything that grieves you, that is against you. We never want to be in that place of, well, well, so what if I sin? Because there's difficulty and hardships. You are the work of his hands. So let him do the work that he wants to do in your life. So, Father, we thank you so much for these lessons. There was a lot that we went over. But, Lord, uh, so much to gain from in these verses and chapters. So I thank you for tonight's message. And I do pray that we would be ones. Uh, Lord, that we would yield to you. You are so gracious and so merciful. You've brought forgiveness to us. And we thank you for that. And so, Lord, we don't want to ever take for granted your incredible grace and mercy and forgiveness and blessing. So, Lord, we desire to just be sensitive to your leading. And if there's anyone here that perhaps the Lord is speaking to you, but you've, you've just quenched the Holy Spirit speaking to you, you don't want to listen to it. 
or you've grieved the Holy Spirit because you continue in that sin, that you would say, tonight, Lord, I hear you, and I'm going to turn away from that to give it to him. John says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, I thank you that you do chasten us because you love us and you want what's best for us. And I pray, Lord, that we would be ones that we would have a desire to walk with you, to love you, to know you in every way. Father, I thank you for bringing us here tonight. And as we're in this period of right before Christmas, less than two weeks, it can get really crazy right now with the cares of life and shopping and, and everything that is going on. And Lord, I pray that we would take the time to really ponder upon the wonderful message that Jesus came to this world to save us from our sins and that we have good news, great tidings, a great joy that will be to all people for born unto you in the city of David, a Savior, Christ the Lord. We thank you for your coming. So I thank you that we can come here tonight and take the time to be reminded of, Lord, that you're going to come back. And I know that all of it can be overwhelming and the events, but Lord, that we are to comfort one another with the words that are given to us, that your return. And I thank you that we have that promise given to us. Help us keep our eyes on you. Lord, help us to be one that represents you, your love. Tell others of the incredible good news, great tidings of great joy, that Jesus Christ came to this world to die for them. So take everyone home safely tonight. Lord, I do pray for those who are going through tribulation or sorrow or difficulties, that they would know that you are working. You're working in their lives and that you will be faithful to them. Your promises are true for them. So Lord, may we rejoice in that. I thank you again for tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.